Hello, everybody, and welcome to Rim Dynasty, an NBA history podcast about the 2000s NBA. My name is Lewis, and today we're going to preview the 1999-2000 NBA season for all the teams in the Pacific Division. I'm going to do a roster breakdown, how each team did in the lockout shortened 1999 season, and, and looking forward to how they might fare in the distant future, the year 2000. So I have some actual team previews from October of 1999 that I'll read parts of from various sources, Sports Illustrated, NBA.com, New York Times. So we actually get to hear you know, what the true expectations were at the time for all these teams, not just interpreting things with 24 years of, of hindsight, which is awesome. That's you know exactly what I wanted when I started this podcast. So we're, we're doing the Pacific Division. Who is in the Pacific Division? The divisions were slightly different back in 1999. Nowadays, we have 30 teams, six divisions, five teams in each. Well, in 1999, there were 29 teams in the NBA, and there were four divisions. There was the Pacific, the Midwest, those were in the Western Conference, and then the East, the Central, and the Atlantic divisions. Three of those four divisions had seven teams. One division had eight. So the Pacific division is made up of the Portland Trailblazers, the Los Angeles Lakers, the Phoenix Suns, the Sacramento Kings, the Seattle Supersonics, the Golden State Warriors, and the Los Angeles Clippers. And that's that's the order we're going to talk about these teams uh, right now. That's from first to seventh place in the Pacific Division in that lockout-shortened 1999 season. But before I get started, I have a link to a survey in the episode description. Please uh, take it if you have a minute. It's just six questions. You don't have to answer every every one of them. It'll help me make this podcast better, and that's good for me and also good for you. There's also all the ways that you can reach me on social media and via voicemail. If you have any feedback on the pod, content suggestions, segment suggestions, etc. I read every DM I get and will read every survey response and incorporate any really good suggestions into the show. All right, let's get started with the Portland Trailblazers. Mike Dunleavy Sr. is the coach. It is his third season with the Trailblazers. In 1999, they went 35-15. and 15. They were 8th in offense, 6th in defense, 3rd in net rating. They were swept in the Western Conference Finals by the eventual champions, the San Antonio Spurs. And looking at the stat sheet, this was a really balanced team in 1999. There was no dominant scoring option. Their leading scorer was J.R. Ryder, a.k.a. Isaiah Ryder, with just under 14 points per game. Their two most common five-man lineups both featured the following four guys. Damon Stoudemire, a.k.a. Mighty Mouse, the 5'10 point guard out of Arizona. He was the seventh overall pick by the Toronto Raptors in 1995. He was traded to his hometown Blazers in 1998. You got J.R. Ryder shooting guard from UNLV, fifth overall pick in 1993 by the Minnesota Timberwolves, traded to Portland in 1996. He's known as a, a bit of a head case. He would get fined and suspended a ton in his NBA career. Sports Illustrator describes him as the human migraine. We got Brian Grant, a six foot nine power forward who could swing up or down a position depending on the circumstances. He was actually the Blazers' small forward in 1998, power forward in 99, and then for most of the 2000s would be listed at center. And he is referred to, you know, as the Blazers' best player in multiple previews that I've read, which is really interesting because I hadn't really heard very much about him before. 
There's also Arvidas Sabonis, who you know most know a little bit about. He's a Lithuanian center who was drafted in 1986, didn't join the NBA until nine years later at age 31. One of the best passing big men of the era. Of course, you know, the, the assist numbers in this day and age are a little unspectacular thanks to, you know, people like his son, DeMontis Sabonis, and Nikola Jokic. So you got Sabonis, you got Brian Grant, J.R. Ryder, Damon Stoudemire, and in one of those lineups, filling the fifth spot was Stacey Ogman. He was the ninth overall pick in 1991, spent the first few years of his career in Atlanta, and eventually found himself in Portland. He is a shooting guard and a small forward. But the lineup of Stoudemire, Ryder, Ogman, Grant, and Sabonis was the most common one for the Blazers in 1999, but it was pretty average. It was minus 0.3 points per 100 possessions. So that, you know, that, that's pretty close to net neutral. But they had a much better lineup that was plus six that replaced Ogman with Rashid Wallace, who most everybody knows. So Wallace had actually started all 77 games he played in the 1998 season. But before the 1999 season began, he went to coach Dunleavy and uh, offered to come off the bench. And that really helped the team out having, you know, such a talented guy coming off the bench. And he was actually second in six man of the year voting in 1999. So that was 1999. They were 35 and 15, second seed in the West, swept the Suns in the first round, beat the Jazz in six. And then in the conference finals were swept by the Spurs. Pretty good season overall. But uh, what did they do in the offseason to build on that? Well, the Blazers made two huge trades. The first was trading J.R. Ryder and Jim Jackson to Atlanta to get Steve Smith, absolute bucket getter at the shooting guard position, as well as a guy named Ed Gray. The second was shipping off Ed Gray, Walt Williams, Kelvin Cato, Carlos Rogers, Stacey Ogman, and Brian Shaw. Basically their entire bench. They shipped that to the Houston Rockets and they got in return Scotty Pippen. So the Blazers gave out six players who started a grand total of 37 games for them to get Scottie Pippen, who had just averaged 14.5 points, 6.5 rebounds, 6 assists, 2.7 stocks for the Houston Rockets. No picks involved, no really super important players either. So that, to me, is an absolute coup by Bob Whitsitt. He's the Blazers' president. Long beforehand, he had earned the nickname Trader Bob because he made a ton of trades in Seattle and Portland, and this is one of his finest trades, in my opinion, even if Pippen was in his mid-30s with four years and, by my count, around $66 million remaining on his contract. They were a team with win-now aspirations. They felt that Pippen was the guy who was going to get them over the hump, never mind the fact that Pippen had not meshed well with Charles Barkley. In their one year in Houston, they didn't get along, didn't play well together. But hey, Charles Barkley was not on Portland. So, you know, who, who really cares about that, right? They also signed uh, what remained of Detlef Schrempf, German player. He was an all-star, sixth man of the year, coming off some really great years in Seattle, but was going to be 37 this upcoming season. He only got offered a million dollars by Seattle, so he skipped down the coast to Portland for $2 million. So going into the season, the nine-man rotation was expected to be as follows. A starting lineup on most nights of Damon Stoudemire, Steve Smith, Scottie Pippen, Brian Grant, and Arvidas Sabonis. And then off the bench, Rashid Wallace, Detlef Schrempf, Greg Anthony, the father of Magic point guard Cole Anthony. And then their young big man, Jermaine O'Neal, who was, you know, at one time the youngest player to ever play in an NBA game. He would become a perennial all-star in Indiana later on. But right now he's just kind of begging for an opportunity to play and re-signed in Portland 
even though he was an unrestricted free agent uh, after his rookie contract with the assurance that in 1999-2000, he would get a larger role on the Blazers. Um, and then another guy, semi-notable, Bonzi Wells uh, was, was a rookie in 99. He's expected to get some minutes this season going into his second year in the league. After the Scottie Pippen trade, Portland is the favorite to win the championship in 2000. Their over-under win total is 57 and a half. Of course, that's never a sure thing. You know, there, there are some question marks, especially because the team just became, you know, a little bit older overnight, 27 and a half to 29 and a half average age, roughly. But with that projected rotation, it's a pretty solid bet they're going to be really, really good in the upcoming season. One thing to keep an eye on, though, is that their payroll is absolutely massive. You know, so I would imagine this is going to come up a lot throughout the season just because they're going to be high profile. There's a lot of money riding on this team being successful, but it's the highest payroll in the NBA at over $73 million. But, you know, who's their owner? Can their owner afford it? Uh, it is Paul Allen, the co-founder of Microsoft. So he can handle that. That $73 million, by the way, is relative to the salary cap of $34 million. But it's important to note that the luxury tax had had been established, but was not in effect yet. I just read some parts of the 1999 collective bargaining agreement and a Forbes article about that CBA. The the 10,000 foot view is that there's like a threshold for what percentage of basketball related income player salary and benefits could be in a season, like an upper limit. In many seasons under the 1999 CBA, that threshold was not hit. And so no teams had to pay a luxury tax. If it did exceed that threshold, which was like 61%, somewhere around there, then all teams with a high enough payroll would then have to pay a luxury tax. But it wouldn't be until uh, the 2005 CBA that there was a luxury tax every year baked into the CBA and a luxury tax line established. But um, as it was, all but a couple teams in the NBA exceeded the salary cap because there, there was no real punishment mechanism in place for the teams yet, other than having to pay more money to players, uh, which they were already agreeing to by signing and trading for players. So it wasn't necessarily an issue to the teams. But anyway, if, if you're not really that into the financial aspect of basketball, if you think it's boring, I'm probably not going to talk about it a ton in this podcast. So, you know, don't worry about it. I like that kind of stuff. It's interesting to me, but it's usually going to be kind of outside of the scope of this podcast. Next up is the Los Angeles Lakers. They are coached by Phil Jackson. Wow. Uh, it's his first season in Los Angeles. In 1999, the Lakers went 31 and 19. They were second in offense, 23rd in defense, swept in the second round by the eventual champion Spurs. And for the Lakers this year, it all comes down to health and to chemistry. They really didn't make very many changes from last year's roster. No huge trades. Uh, there, there is one that I'll get to, but you, you've got Shaquille O'Neal, who got injured from time to time in his last season in Orlando, his first two seasons in LA. He did only miss a one game in his third season in LA, though. You've got Kobe Bryant, who is coming off of his first season as a starter. He started all 50 games in 99, averaged about 20 points, five rebounds, four assists, two and a half stocks. He's coming off of a preseason hand injury that's going to hold him out a little while. These two guys, I don't know if you've uh, ever heard of them, uh, heard about their classic tension. They fight like cats and dogs, but allegedly going into the season, they're friends. Shaq made an appearance at Kobe's 21st birthday party, and even though they hate each other's play style, 
Shaq wants the ball in the post. Kobe wants the ball on the perimeter. They don't really want to pass to each other. Phil Jackson's court-mandated triangle offense should uh, work some of those chemistry issues out on the court. But there's also a third star in the building. There's Glenn Rice, who's a three-time All-Star, small forward, whom the Lakers acquired from the Charlotte Hornets in the middle of the 1999 season. He's a little upset. The Lakers picked up his team option instead of just signing him to a new contract. So we'll see how that plays out over the course of this season, because he will be entering unrestricted free agency in 2000. And then surrounding that big three in the starting lineup is going to be Ron Harper, who comes to the Lakers from the Bulls, where he won three championships as the starting point guard and gives Phil Jackson a little bit of help in installing the triangle offense in L.A. He's also a great defender, which is excellent news for the Lakers, because as I mentioned, they were a little bit of a glass cannon back in 99, second in offense, 23rd in defense. And then at the four, famous virgin A.C. Green, the Iron Man who is uh, looking to build on his streak of 1,028 consecutive games played. A.C. Green is returning to the Lakers with whom he'd already won the 87 and 88 championships from the Dallas Mavericks in exchange for the Lakers backup center, Sean Rooks. And then off the bench, returning from last season, you got Rick Fox. He's a Canadian small forward who's already been in the six-man role back in 1999. Robert Ory. I used to call him Robert Horry because I'd, I'd never never really watched him play. I'm going to fix that. So it's Robert Ory, actually. But he's no stranger to big moments. He already has two rings from his Houston Rocket days. Derek Fisher, he's a solid backup point guard who was expected by some to start games, but the late offseason acquisition of Ron Harper kind of quashed those hopes for uh, for Mr. Fisher. Travis Knight, he's a center who played a, a decent-sized role for the Lakers in 99. And then there's newcomer Brian Shaw, uh, a combo guard who most notably played for the Boston Celtics and the Orlando Magic. So 1999 for the Lakers was kind of a rough season for them. They did beat the Barkley and Pippen Rockets in the first round, but longtime head coach Del Harris had been fired early in the season after a loss to my Vancouver Grizzlies, dropped them to 6-6 six and six on the season. Bill Burtka and Kurt Rambis finished out the year as the interim coaches. But um, if anybody's going to be able to turn the Lakers around, it's going to be Phil Jackson. If you've never heard of him, he is the guy who uh, won six titles with the Chicago Bulls, not Michael Jordan. He's, he's another guy. He was the coach. He's also joined by a lot of his coaching staff from Chicago. You got Frank Hamblin. He was an assistant coach for the last three titles in Chicago. Jim Clemens. He was an assistant from 89 to 96 in Chicago. Also briefly the head coach of the Dallas Mavericks. And then Tex Winter, the creator of the triangle offense and tex winter was uh was under phil jackson for all six of the bulls championships so jackson is known for being great at managing personalities and shaq and kobe are two of the biggest personalities in the nba so we will see how this season turns out for them they're second in championship odds they have their win total set at 53 and a half one thing to mention with them is that shaq came into training camp at 340 pounds it's about 40 pounds heavier than he was in his rookie season, 10 pounds heavier than he was in the 99 season. He says it's no big deal. He says, you know, the more I lift weights, the heavier I'm going to be. Phil Jackson mostly agrees, says that Shaq, you know, get, gets fouled harder and more often than anyone else in the league. But, you know, brings up the caveat that Shaq did have a knee injury in 97. 
has also struggled with lingering pain from an abdominal injury in 1997. So it may serve him better to reduce his playing weight. But for the time being, Jackson, it's not going to be pushy. Next up is the Phoenix Suns. They are coached by Danny Ainge. He's entering his fourth season as the head coach of the Suns. The Suns were the final team he played for in the NBA. He took over for Cotton Fitzsimmons eight games into the 97 season when they were 0-8. In 1999, they were 27-23, and went to the playoffs where they were swept by the Portland Trailblazers. They were fourth in offense, 19th in defense. So similar to the Lakers in that sense, you know, they were great on offense in the bottom half of the league on defense. But in 2000, I am really excited to watch some of the Suns games because this team is going to be super exciting. I have a couple of Suns games on the docket here, which I'm really happy about. So they made one major acquisition in the offseason, and that is they got Penny Hardaway in a sign-and-trade deal with the Orlando Magic. The Suns sent over Danny Manning, who was the number one overall pick in 1988 by the Clippers. Uh, and then the rookie, Pat Garrity. So that's two forwards, as well as two first-round picks to Orlando for Penny Hardaway. And that's actually closer, in my eyes, to what we'd expect for a, a blockbuster trade nowadays than what the Pippen deal was that you know didn't involve any picks. Now, Penny's entire job in Phoenix is going to be to score because he's playing alongside Jason Kidd, who is coming off of a fifth-place finish in MVP voting. He averaged a hair under 17 points seven rebounds, 11 assists per game. Those are all career highs. Kidd also had 2.3 steals per game, made first team all defense for the first time in his career. And these two guys together is thought to be like at worst, the second best backcourt in the league going into the season. Only Rod Strickland and Mitch Richmond in Washington rivals them, but those guys are both in their mid thirties. Kidd is going to be 26. Penny's going to be 28 going into this season. So now, Penny Hardaway is not a sure thing. He's coming off of a healthy season, but in 1998, he had a left knee injury, and then he tried to come back earlier than he should have from that knee injury and exacerbated it, missed the, the rest of the season. He's also clashed uh, with a couple of the Magic's head coaches and with Shaq back when he was in Orlando. So he's developing a bit of a, a reputation for himself as being immature, which is a criticism that still plagues him to this day as the head coach of uh, my beloved University of Memphis Tigers. But as it was, Penny was not even expected to uh, have to run the offense or be a locker room leader at all. All of that was going to be Jason Kidd's job. And a note, this is before Kidd was arrested for domestic violence and drunk driving both. So it's still in like the feel-good era of his career. Now, who was surrounding, as some Suns fans call it, backcourt 2000? So at one forward spot was Clifford Robinson. He is a, a great scorer. He came to Phoenix from Portland in 1997, a 6'10", so he started his career in Portland at power forward and center, was an all-star in 1994 at center, but then the next season moved to small forward where he began immediately shooting five threes a game at 37%. Next season, six threes a game at 38%. That came out of nowhere. At this point in his career, he's averaging 16 points a game on close to league average, uh, true shooting, just a hair below. And then the other forward is Tom Gugliotta, who I love. He came to the Suns despite a larger offer from his incumbent team, the Timberwolves, because he really disliked the point guard of the Timberwolves, Stefan Marbury. But I hate to break it to Tom in a couple of years. He is going to be teammates with Stefan Marbury again. But the Wolves offered Gugliotta seven years, $86 million. 
and he, he turned it down. He took six years, 60 million from the Suns instead. I don't know if I could hate somebody enough to turn down an extra $26 million personally, but that's just me. Tom Gugliotta was not a good three-point shooter, but was super reliable inside the three-point line, shot nearly 48% from long two range in 1999, and by the way, was the team's leading scorer and rebounder with 17 and 9 in 99. And then at center, uh, really the rate-limiting factor, so to speak, for the, the style of play that Ainge wants the Suns to play, which is run and gun, push the ball, is Luke Longley of Chicago Bulls fame, the Australian center. Obviously a very competent player, just not fast enough to keep up with the rest of this lineup. He'd been completely neutralized in the playoffs against the Blazers, only scored four total points and was benched after the first quarter of Game 2 in a 3-0 sweep. I've been watching soccer all day. That That's why I said nil. Uh... He's lost some weight coming into the season with the stated goal of being able to run with the rest of the team. Some other guys on the team, Rex Chapman, well-renowned three-point shooter who didn't really play very well in 99, only shot 36% within the arc, including 31% outside of three feet. Uh, That's pretty bad. They also drafted Sean Marion, ninth overall out of UNLV, great defender and rebounder in college, 19 points nine rebounds, four and a half stocks, give or take, and 57% from two in his one season at UNLV. So he's an uber athlete. He would only help the Suns push the pace, you know. The New York Times called him the steal of the draft in their preview because he he played really well in the preseason. They signed Rodney Rogers. He's a, a starting quality forward from the LA Clippers. Oliver Miller, unfortunately, he's known a little bit more for his weight than his play. Uh, but they signed him for center depth. He was an extremely skilled center and was effective when he could play. Uh, he'd played for the Suns from 92 to 94. And outside of a season with the expansion Toronto Raptors, he, he probably had played his best years in Phoenix, but was was ridiculed in Sacramento for his weight. But, but coming into training camp with the Suns, he's reported to have lost over 70 pounds down from 365 pounds to under 300 after having been mocked actually by the Suns mascot for his weight in a game in February. Um, Then the Kings waived him within the next week and he he started doing two-a-day workouts and in the span of about eight months, he lost 70 pounds. So that's incredible. Not a great look for the Suns to put their gorilla mascot in a a fat suit and an Oliver Miller jersey, but I don't know. It It was 1999, so I don't know. But the expected eight-man rotation for the Suns was going to be Jason Kidd, Penny Hardaway, Clifford Robinson, Tom Gugliotta. All four of those guys have been all-stars at some point in their career. And then Luke Longley in the middle. Then off the bench, Rex Chapman, Rodney Rogers, Sean Marion. So the Suns had the eighth best championship odds, win total set at 49 and a half, both of which Jason Kidd scoffed at. He he was counting the rings already. And, and, you know, this really did have the potential to be an offensive juggernaut. And the, the plan is to be a transition heavy team with Kidd and with Penny Hardaway running the show, getting a lot of attention in the open court and getting open shots for all the other guys. Would that be the case? We're going to find out as the season goes along. But, but, you know, also they had been in the playoffs every season since 1989, but had not won a series since 1995. Is that going to change? Should be interesting to see. Next up are the Sacramento Kings, coached by Rick Allman of Portland Trailblazers fame. 
took the Blazers to the finals in 1990 against the Pistons and 1992 against the Bulls, lost both times. But he is in his second season in Sacramento, and in his first season, uh, the Kings were a wildly entertaining group. First in points per game, first in pace. The typical starting lineup of Jason White Chocolate Williams, Tariq Abdul-Wahad, Corliss Williamson, Chris Weber, and Vladi Divac tore up the league. Now, on a per-possession basis, things were a little different. They were 13th in offense, 18th in defense, finished with a 27-23 and 23 record. But they were the only team in the NBA to average over 100 points per game in 1999. Now, unfortunately, they lost in five games to the Utah Jazz in the first round of the playoffs. And by the way, the Jazz were heavily favored in the series and had the MVP Carl Malone on their side. But it was only the third time that the Kings had even made the playoffs since they moved to Sacramento from Kansas City. So just being in the playoffs and making a little noise was a a really good thing for them. They held a 2-1 series lead, lost game four by one point. John Stockton hit the game winner in in that game with 0.7 seconds remaining. Then they lost game five by seven points. So, you know, they're right on the precipice of, of an upset there. And the Kings looked like they would make the playoffs again you know, coming into this season, they still had White Chocolate, who of course is a fantastic and very flashy passer, well worth the price of admission on his own. He averaged six assists and six and a half three-point attempts per game in his rookie season. Got the Twin Towers. Uh, it is 1999, so we're still allowed to say that. The Twin Towers of Chris Weber and Vlade Divac. Weber was seventh in MVP voting with 20 points and a league-leading 13 rebounds per game. Also had four assists three and a half stocks. And then there's Divots who had 14 points, 10 rebounds, and over four assists per game as well. So they've got two big men who are really willing and skilled passers. Weber entering his second season in Sacramento, he's considered one of the most skilled and complete players in the NBA. But there's one caveat to that, and that is that he is a worse free throw shooter than Shaq. He shot a career low 45% from the free throw line in 1999. There's also Corliss Williamson. He would be sticking around for his fifth season in Sacramento, his third as a consistent starter. He's a pretty good forward out of the University of Arkansas. Now, what about Tariq Abdul-Wahad? Well, with the Kings now in playoff mode and the Orlando Magic having a bit of a fire sale, as we'll, we'll talk about in the Atlantic Division preview, they were able to get Nick Anderson from the Magic for Abdul-Wahad and a first-rounder. And that is a great addition, Anderson is, because he's a a career 15.5 point per game scorer, 49% from two, 36% from three. Great scorer. You know, he's he's a veteran who's been on an NBA Finals team. And he has rejuvenated his career a little bit after a rough patch. In the two seasons following his infamous four consecutive missed free throws at the end of game one, of the 95 finals, uh, that was, of course, the Orlando Magic and the Houston Rockets. Anderson was so psychologically scarred by that that he had two just horrible shooting seasons and he stopped driving to the rim because he was scared of shooting free throws. His, his free throw percentage dropped from a career percentage of 70% from 90 to 95 to 40% in 1997, which is, is crazy. Uh, but he returned to form, was driving, was uh, you know back to hitting 60% of his free throws for a, for a so-called shooting guard. And somebody who shot a, a pretty good percentage from three, he was a horrendous free throw shooter. It's kind of odd. He had a good all-around game. He posted up a good amount as well. 
According to Sports Illustrated, he had a sports psychologist and an incentive in his contract that gave him a certain amount of money if he would go to the free throw line a certain amount of times per game. So they really had to get creative to find a way to incentivize him to get over his fear of the line, but money would do that for me too. So that rounds out their most likely starting lineup. White Chocolate, Nick Anderson, Corliss Williamson, Chris Weber, and Vlade Divac. They've got a, a Croatian guy coming off the bench for his second season uh, named Peja Stojakovic. Don't know anything about him. He, you know, he's probably probably not going to be any good, but he's a, he's a tall, small forward. He will be joined by Lawrence Funderburg, who's a power forward. John Barry, who's a very energetic three-point shooter, one of the many sons of Rick Barry. You got center Scott Pollard, and then veteran point guard Derek Martin, whose claim to fame is beating Michael Jordan in a pickup game on the set of Space Jam, and then talking shit to Jordan during a game in Vancouver, where Jordan uh, then scored 19 points in the final six minutes in the fourth quarter, and then uh, said to Martin, who was sitting on the bench, shut up, you little bitch. Now, they had a good season in 1999, and a, a win total over-under set at 46.5 wins, but they have great expectations for themselves this season. Vlade Divac says that anything less than 50 wins is a failure of a season. Nick Anderson says that with the amount of talent on this team, they should expect to win the championship. I think that's a little extreme, but there is a ton of talent here. There's a little bit of uncertainty. Chris Weber really didn't want to be traded to Sacramento and so far has not signed a contract extension. Corliss Williamson is playing on a, a shorter and less lucrative contract than he'd like as well. So maybe there's some frustration over, over contracts that's going to boil over this year, or maybe they'll live up to the, the potential that they see in themselves. We'll check on them throughout the season, of course. I have, I have a, a good amount of Kings games that we're going to watch. In part because, as the New York Times points out, they're on national TV for the first time in ages. This sounds a lot like, you know, going into the, the 2024 season for the Sacramento Kings now. The New York Times says that since they moved to Sacramento, the Kings have been on national TV like about a dozen times in 16 years. And in 2000, they're going to be on 20 times. So I don't really know how to check and verify if, you know, a dozen is just an exaggeration or not, but it, it sounds right, so I'm going to run with it. Okay, the Seattle Supersonics. They're coached by Paul Westfall. It's his second season in Seattle after a few years in Phoenix, where he took the Suns to the 1993 NBA Finals. Last season, the Sonics were 6th in offense, 26th in defense. Uh, by the way, I, ha I had to double-check to see if that was correct, because... I classically have known the Seattle Supersonics as being a good defensive team, but they had the fourth worst defense in the NBA in 99. It was the first time since 92 uh, when Casey Jones, who won two titles with the Celtics, was coaching Seattle, that the Sonics didn't have a top 10 defense. And usually throughout the 90s, they were in the top five as well. Every season that George Carl was in charge for the entire season, the Sonics were really great defensively. So that's quite a fall-off for the Sonics in 99. But 99 was the first season after Nate McMillan's retirement. Uh, of course, he's known as more of a coach nowadays, but he was a great defensive point guard. He and Gary Payton combined to be just a tenacious point guard rotation. Uh, McMillan made second-team all-defense in 94 and 95, uh, starting a, a combined total of 26 games in those two seasons. And uh, Payton 
was first team all defense in those seasons and a lot of seasons after that. But I'm getting a little ahead of myself here. The, the Sonics in 99, they were sixth in offense, 26th in defense, 25 and 25. Could have made the playoffs if they had just won their final game of the season against the Portland Trailblazers, but instead they got blown out. So they went on vacation early, and uh, this was the first time since 1990 that the Sonics missed the playoffs and th that they hadn't won two-thirds of their games, which, which in a full season is 55 games. That's the Gary Payton effect, man. They, they missed the playoffs, and then they had a lot of lottery luck because they were 41-41 they were and 41 and won the second pick in the lottery. That's, that's crazy. That was different lottery odds, of course, but you know Gary Payton, he's pretty good. The Sonics had made the finals in 96. They lost to the Chicago Bulls. In 97, they lost to the Houston Rockets in the second round in seven games. That was a very close series. The Rockets held a 3-1 lead, but the Sonics came back. Uh, the largest margin of victory in that series was 10 points, and that was in game one. After that, it was all single-digit games. And in 98, they lost to the Lakers in five games. They got reverse swept, won game one, and then got destroyed in every game afterward. And then, of course, as I said, missed the playoffs in 99. Now, the Sonics, after a really disappointing season for them, really shook things up. They traded a ton of people, uh, several to the Orlando Magic on draft night, but I'll get to that in a minute. The only major guys in their rotation that they kept were Gary Payton and Vin Baker. Gary Payton, I've been talking about him. Uh, he's one of the greatest point guards of all time. Payton's past six seasons, he's averaging 20 points, seven and a half assists, two and a half steals. Average efficiency, but he's an incredible defender, relentless shit talker, just a just a winner, man. He's a really awesome player who's only about 30 years old. Uh, so throughout the scope of this podcast, we, we get to see a, a few good years from him here still. And the other guy I mentioned, Vin Baker, he's a big man. He's a great player out of the University of Hartford. He was an all-star in his second, third, and fourth seasons in the league with the Milwaukee Bucks, played there for four seasons. Um, and then was traded to Seattle. He had a major drop-off in production, though, from 1998 to 99. He went from 19 points a game on 54% shooting to 14 points a game on 45% shooting. And the reason for that is because he was struggling with a, a torn ligament in one of his thumbs. He also had a bone bruise in one of his knees that season. Uh, he came into training camp about 25 pounds over his usual playing weight after the lockout struggled with confidence, um, you know, just overall the worst season of his career. But the Sonics weren't that worried. They signed him to a seven-year contract extension valued at over $12 million a year. And in the Sports Illustrated preview for the Sonics, it, it starts out with a pretty incredible quote. And this is really going to let you know just how cheesy the 2000s were. I, I, I absolutely love this. Vin Baker may prefer to listen to R&B and gospel but the rock band Smash Mouth could have had the Sonics power forward in mind last summer when they sang, Hey now, you're an all-star. Get your game on. Go play. So that's great. But anyway, the Sonics gave him an extension and said, Get back out there, buddy. So, you know, we, we love that, that confidence in their star big man. And also, Vin Baker and Gary Payton are best friends. And uh, Gary Payton said, You know, I'm going to shoot less and I'm going to pass the ball to my good friend Vin Moore, and I think that's pretty adorable. Now, about that trade that I mentioned earlier with Orlando, here is who they sent out. They sent the 13th pick in the 99 draft. That was Corey Maggette out of Duke. 
They sent Dale Ellis, who was an all-star for the Sonics in, in the late 80s and early 90s. Great scorer. Uh, got absolutely no run in his first three seasons in Dallas and then immediately became a 25-point-a-night uh, scorer upon being traded to Seattle. There's Don McLean, a rarely used power forward. He, he's not the guy who sang American Pie, by the way. Um, they also shipped out Billy Owens, who was the third pick in the 91 draft, drafted by the Kings, didn't want to play there. The Warriors traded Mitch Richmond for him, and then he was kind of a bust. So they traded all those guys to Orlando, and they got in return Horace Grant. Now, many of us know Horace Grant. There's a lot of, a lot of blockbuster trades for former Bulls, by the way. Many of us know Horace Grant. He's the brother of Harvey Grant. He's the uncle of Jeremy Grant, Jerian, and Jerry Grant as well. At the time, he's a three-time NBA champion, all three rings with the Chicago Bulls, one-time All-Star. Just been a really solid player, very good mid-range. Well, I, I'm understanding. He, he, was, he was a great mid-range shooter. He shot very often, and he shot very well. Um, for the seasons that we have shot location data from on Basketball Reference 97 onward, he shot, he shot half. He shot 50% of his shots from mid-range. Uh, and only a quarter around the rim. That's pretty unorthodox for a six foot ten big man. Uh, but he relied heavily on long twos and made them at a over forty four percent clip. So that's that's really good. So Horace Grant was definitely a, a great consolation prize for the Sonics after their efforts to acquire Scottie Pippen failed. The Sonics said goodbye to their center, Olden Polonese. They brought in Brent Barry, who's kind of a hot and cold shooting guard at the expense of his brother, Drew Barry. Uh, we've talked about all three Barry brothers here uh, who were in the league at the time, just in this one episode. That's that's pretty cool. Traded one-time all-star Hersey Hawkins to Chicago to get Brent Barry. Drew Barry was just waived, by the way. He wasn't involved in the trade for Brent Barry. They also said goodbye to Detlef Schrempf. As I mentioned before, he's you know, maybe a little bit old, but you know it, it could just be time to move on. It's, it's not necessarily a bad move to let a 37-year-old guy walk, unless it's LeBron James or something. But that's a lot of people that they're trading away or letting walk in free agency. So who else are they adding? They're getting Vernon Maxwell of Rockets fame. He's a shooting guard with two championship rings. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put a heavy, I don't usually do this. I'm going to put a heavy asterisk, bold, italicized, underlined on his second championship ring. He did not contribute one iota to the 95 ring. Uh, he faked an injury and sat out all but one game in 95 because he was upset that the uh, the Rockets had traded for Clyde Drexler midseason. So he, he doesn't deserve that one. They're also adding Greg Foster. He's a big man from the Utah Jazz. Ruben Patterson from the Lakers. He's a, a small forward who barely played in his rookie season with the Lakers. And they actually let him go after he averaged only six minutes per game. But Patterson is actually going to start for the Sonics this season. He declared himself the Kobe buster and says that he regularly shuts down Kobe in practice uh, also calls himself the next glove says he's going to take over for Gary Payton who he says is getting old so you know I, I'm going to be real interested in keeping up with this uh, this Ruben Patterson guy he's, he's, he seems fun now one thing about the Sonics is that they are really really small they don't really have a center per se they have Greg Foster he's not very productive they have Vin Baker and Horace Grant they're more of a power forward um, but they're going to make it work. It's you know going to be a bunch of guys playing together for the first time. But to me, on its face, it sounds like it's going to be fine. That you know, obviously, I can see the result of this season for the Sonics. But if I were looking at this team right now, 
not knowing how they'd turn out, uh, I would say, yeah, you know, I, I actually kind of like the direction this is heading. Gary Payton, um, bounce back a year for Vin Baker. We've seen how well he can play. It's a new opportunity for Ruben Patterson. Horace Grant is in the building. You got Vernon Maxwell. Um, they're probably going to be a pretty good team. Not a championship contender, but a good team. Their win total over under was set at 34 and a half games, which I found to be insultingly low. I'm going to spoil one thing, which is that they're going to go over that. But will Paul Westfall be able to smush all of these new pieces together? Only time will tell. Uh, but here's their projected rotation from NBA.com Gary Payton, Brent Berry, Horace Grant at small forward, Vin Baker and then Greg Foster as the center. Coming off the bench, Vernon Maxwell, Jelani McCoy, who's another center, and Ruben Patterson. I'm going to spoil another thing for you. I'm, I'm going to try not to do this too much. Uh, this is completely wrong. Uh, neither Greg Foster nor Jelani McCoy are going to play much at all this season, and they're kind of just going to go small and roll with Vin Baker and Horace Grant. And we'll see that in our very first game of the week when, when the weekly episodes roll around. Uh, because our very first game is going to be the Seattle Supersonics at the Los Angeles Clippers. Speaking of the Clippers, well, they're actually not next. Uh, there's one other team I'm talking about first. That is the Golden State Warriors. They're coached by PJ Carlissimo. It's his third season in Oakland. It's been just under two years since he was choked by the former Warriors shooting guard Latrell Sprewell in practice. The Warriors were 27th in offense, 10th in defense in 99, finished with a 21-29 and 29 record, missed the playoffs. These are really the dog days for the Warriors franchise. They hadn't made the playoffs since 94 when they were coached by Don Nelson. Uh, he was the winningest coach in NBA history until last year when, when Coach Popovich passed him. Uh, I'll talk about him more in the Dallas Mavericks preview. So it's been five seasons without postseason basketball in Oakland, but... They do have something to be optimistic about. That is their franchise player who just finished up his rookie season, Antoine Jameson. He's a forward out of UNC, drafted fourth by the Toronto Raptors, actually, traded to the Warriors for his college teammate, Vince Carter, who was the fifth pick. This trade is, is a little rough to look back on because Jameson, he's a really good player. He's going to score a lot of points for the Warriors in the coming years, but they gave up on a chance to have Vince Carter and... They paid the Raptors an extra $300,000 in the deal as well to, to get Antoine Jameson. But please do not let me give you the impression that Antoine Jameson is bad just because he's not Vince Carter doesn't make him bad at basketball. In fact, he was so good in the second half of his rookie season that the entire Sports Illustrated season preview for the Warriors is just about Antoine Jameson. In his rookie season, he, he uh, started coming off the bench for the first 23 games and started his final 24. In 24 starts, he averaged uh, over 12 points per game, seven rebounds. And uh, by the way, he was, he was a really great offensive rebounder, one of the best offensive rebounders in the league as a rookie. Uh, and that's at six foot eight, listed at small forward. Not the least efficient player in the world, but took a ton of shots between three and 10 feet. Uh, that's kind of an aberration after his first two seasons in the league. He's kind of just figuring things out, I guess. But even though he's not the best player on the team per se not the most notorious either given john starks's presence on the roster his second half of the season really resonated with the front office and the coaching staff so jameson is front and center on all warriors season ticket sales campaigns both in print and on tv so they really believe in him 
they think he's the guy that is going to get people in Oakland excited about Warriors basketball again. And that's good that they think that because looking around the roster, there's not that much else to be super optimistic about outside of the chance for, you know, a lot of the players to develop together. Uh, one thing that may help them out, though, is their one major offseason acquisition, which is Mookie Blaylock from the Atlanta Hawks. He's in his early 30s. He's coming off a season in which he averaged around 13 points and five rebounds, six assists, two steals. He was an all-star in 94. And he's been on the all-defensive first or second team six years in a row now. So, you know, that's that's a good pickup. Mookie Blaylock is a, a really good player. Took a ton of threes, shot them at a good clip. Not in 99 in particular, but just in the mid to late 90s. So who'd they trade away to get Mookie Blaylock? The Warriors traded away Bimbo Coles. Great name. The great uh, hoop grids poll that I've used a few times as well. Bimbo started at point guard for the Warriors a good amount in 99. They also traded Dwayne Farrell. He was just salary fodder in the trade, as well as the pick that became Jason Terry, who, you know, was a really solid player, but at the time, just the 10th pick in the 99 draft and Mookie Blaylock was more established. The Warriors are really gunning for the playoffs right now, so they need known quantities. And at the time, you know, Jason Terry just wasn't uh, a known quantity and, and Mookie Blaylock was. So Mookie is the big addition, uh, but they also, through a series of trades, wound up with Vontigo Cummings. He's a point guard uh, who was drafted 26 overall in 99 out of Pitt. But as far as guys who are going to play a ton in this upcoming season, that's about it. But who, so who's on the team uh, surrounding Antoine Jameson and Mookie Blaylock? I've, I've already mentioned John Starks, who I was, I was talking to one of my uncles recently, and I was saying the way that people talk about John Starks and, and the amount that people talk about John Starks, I would have thought that he was like a five-time all-star, 20-point-per-game scorer throughout the 90s, efficient, you know, started games, anything like that. I definitely respect him for what he did. Accolades and points aren't the only things that matter in basketball. He was he was a major contributor to a lot of really good Knicks teams. Yeah, I, I enjoyed learning a lot about him when I read Blood in the Garden by Chris Herring, but I, I was really surprised to find out that he's a one-time all-star, one-time all-defense, one-time six-man, and that's it. Averaged 14 points a game across his Knicks career, started less than half of, of those 600 games that he played in a Knicks uniform. But uh, I'm not trying to shit on him at all. It's just really interesting the way that this guy in particular is lionized in the collective memory of, of NBA history. But um, he is a compelling story. He played in the CBA and the World Basketball League. He, he went undrafted in the NBA draft, became a hero for the Knicks. It, you know, it's really cool. I just feel like he's a little overrepresented is all. But anyway, Starks started all 50 games for the Warriors in 99. Another thing that I wouldn't have thought is that the 99 finals run for the Knicks was without John Starks. But this is the kind of thing that I'm hoping to learn myself and pass on to uh, to you, the listeners. But Starks was acquired in the Latrell Sprewell deal with the Knicks. Also coming over from the Knicks, Chris Mills, a combo forward who, who played a good amount for the Warriors in 99. And Terry Cummings, who's entering his age 38 season coming into the 2000 season. Uh, and he's played so long that he started his career with the San Diego Clippers. And he's going to play a game in the year 2000. That's crazy to me. Who, so who else is on the team? You got Jason Caffey. He's a power forward that the Warriors got from the Chicago Bulls a few years back. He's got two rings, championship experience. 
He was expected to be the most common starter at power forward this season. There's also Eric Dampier. He started all 50 games for the Warriors the year before. Uh, even better offensive rebounder than Antoine Jameson. So as I keep alluding to, this team is not great on offense, but they've got guys who can defend uh, and guys who can rebound. So you know that's that's the only reason they were able to be close to 500 in 99 is that they're it's just full of guys who can play defense. So you'd expect that this team might be a good defensive team in the year 2000. Will they be? It's anybody's guess, really. It's, it's you know it's hard to predict these things. Who knows? Um, but another guy on this team, uh, by the way, is Danielle Marshall. He was the team's second leading scorer coming off the bench at 11 points per game. I, I told you this team is not very good offensively. They're 27th in offense. But this is a lineup projected by a couple different sources uh, that the Warriors are probably going to use for most of the season. Mookie Blaylock starting at the one, John Starks at the two, Antoine Jameson at the three, Jason Caffey and Eric Dampier at four and five. Then off the bench, uh, Chris Mills, Danielle Marshall, Terry and Vontigo Cummings. Now, I mentioned that this team wants to make the playoffs. That's why you trade for a player like Mookie Blaylock, but it's really not looking likely for them. Uh, there, there are so many good teams in the West this year, and the Warriors just don't look like they have enough to get it done this year. But fear not, they are going to have an interesting season, uh, and we're going to be checking in on them. Oh, I forgot to put the win total. I have it in another tab. Um, their over-under win total is 36 and a half, so... You know, not expected to be complete garbage. Uh, will they be complete garbage? We'll see. We'll check in on them. Now, last, but certainly not least, the Los Angeles Clippers. That was a joke, by the way. Uh, in this sense, they are the least. In this division, they had the least amount of wins in the lockout shortened 99 season. Nine wins, 41 losses. Only one team had fewer than nine wins that season. Least amount of defense played in the division. Gave up almost 110 points per 100 possessions. So this is going to blow your mind here. The oh, what's what's the thing that white guys in in their podcasts say? That, that's not me, obviously. I'm I'm not a super white guy, but uh, what it was like? Can I blow your mind right now? And then just say something absolutely stupid. This I promise is actually kind of interesting. Um, the Clippers were 22nd in offense, 28th in defense. That defensive rating giving up 109.7 points per 100 possessions was the second worst defensive rating in the NBA that year in 99. This past season in real life, the one where the Denver Nuggets won the championship, giving up 109.7 points per 100 possessions would be what place in today's NBA? I'm going to let you noodle on that for a second. It would be for, it would be the best defense in the NBA, uh, obviously because teams take and, and make more threes these days but that that was that was incredible to me but anyway the it's gonna be i'm i i've really really tried to make this a, a positive outlook uh an optimistic outlook but the clippers are, are one of the worst teams in the nba they're coached by chris ford he was an assistant coach for the celtics through the mid to late 1980s uh head coach of the celtics for five seasons coached in milwaukee as well now he's in la it's not looking good for him he's on the hot seat the roster's not great but honestly, there is enough here that if I were a Clippers fan in 1999, I would think, okay, actually, if if the young players improve and we, we get another good player with our lottery pick this year, we get a new coach in here, maybe relocate the team and change its name, there's something here that we should be 
slightly optimistic about. I, I would be absolutely crushed by that expectation based on what the reality is, but I could talk myself into this team. So what I want to do is I'm going to read the intro to the Sports Illustrated preview for the Clippers here. Um, and by the way, I neglected to, I just realized I didn't mention this in the Lakers section. The Staples Center is is opening this season. It's brand new. So the Lakers and Clippers both have a new arena and are playing in the same arena for the first time in a while. So here's the start of that uh, preview. The comedy of errors that is the Clippers is back and coming to an arena near you. The cast of characters is slightly different, but the plot is essentially unchanged. A bumbling team tries to transform itself from a punchline into a powerhouse with the aid of a lottery pick rookie who it hopes will develop into a superstar. Folks in Hollywood haven't seen this many bad sequels since the Police Academy films. Oh, come on. Uh, I've, I've actually never seen Police Academy or any of its sequels, but I do know that it's been used as a punchline several times in The Simpsons, so I'm going to pretend that I got that one. Now, that lottery pick rookie uh, that they're hoping changes... And we're back. Sorry, I... Um... I have a new puppy and she attacked me and uh, I had to let her out to uh, go to the bathroom. But anyway, uh, I was at Lamar Odom. Okay, the lottery pick rookie that they're hoping changes everything for the Clippers is Lamar Odom. He's out of the University of Rhode Island. He has a uh, had a long and winding road to get to the Clippers. He was supposed to go to UNLV, couldn't play for them because uh, it turned out that his, his ACT score was fake. He took $5,600 from a booster. Um, he tried to hire a sex worker. She was actually a cop. Just a, just a bunch of things that went wrong that kept him from going to UNLV. Found his way to Rhode Island, and he played really well there. Almost went to the Vancouver Grizzlies with the second overall pick, who he actually would have fit really well with, uh, and he really wanted to be drafted by them. But then he got cold feet. He, he tried to go back to Rhode Island for another season, but he'd already hired an agent, so he was stuck in the draft. Went to the Clippers. Lamar Odom is, is really versatile. He played almost, he played every position but center in the preseason for the Clippers. For a 6'10 forward in college to average almost four assists per game. And in college, I've talked about it before in, a, in another podcast, assists are really hard to come by in college, especially for a forward. So that's really impressive to me and to the Clippers, obviously. So Odom is going to play mostly small forward this season, and the two big men surrounding him are going to be Michael Olawakandi, the candy man. He was the first overall pick in the 98 draft. He's at the center. Uh, and then at the power forward, Maurice Taylor, who just wrapped up his second season in the NBA and started almost every game uh, for the Clippers, put up about 17 points a game, but only five rebounds. Not a big rebounder, but he, he could put up points for a bad team, that is. But let me go back to Olawakandi. Michael Olawakandi had all of the physical tools. He's seven feet tall, uber athletic, could bench press 350, leg press 1200. One of the best track and field athletes in London growing up. So what, what's the downside here? Well, it's a really minor point. He, he's never played basketball before. He decided one day that he wanted to play basketball, so he started placing long-distance international calls to random U.S. colleges from London and said, I'm seven feet tall. I'm really strong. I'm really fast. Can you teach me how to play basketball? First place he called was Duke, and they said, what? Uh, no. Second place he called was Georgetown. They said, um, mm, no. But then the University of the Pacific said, uh, fly to San Francisco now. We will pick you up from the airport. So off he went 
He played three seasons for Pacific, got better every year, uh, and eventually because of his physical profile, and he developed some skills there, he became the number one overall pick. Didn't have a great rookie season, about 9.8 rebounds, but he was playing through a knee injury. He wanted to power through it since it was just a 50-game season. But the Clippers certainly want more from their number one overall pick center going into year two. Um, In the backcourt, we have Eric Murdoch. He is kind of a journeyman. He's another great hoop grids pull. Played for the Jazz, the Bucks, the Grizzlies, the Nuggets, the Heat, and the Nets before getting to uh, to L.A. Murdoch was actually really good for the Bucks for a couple seasons in 93 and 94, but got traded after uh, a beef with their head coach at the time, Mike Dunleavy. But 15 points and seven assists per game uh, across those two seasons as a starter. Now, the Bucks won a total of 48 games in those two seasons, so take that with a, a grain of salt if you want to. But then another guy that I might be optimistic about if I were a Clippers fan in 1999 is uh, 25-year-old Derek Anderson, whom the Clippers got from the Cavaliers basically for free. He's a 6'5 shooting guard from Kentucky who played a big role off the bench for the Cavaliers in their first round playoff loss to the Pacers in 98. He could become something or become part of something. Uh, And that's really all that bad teams need is, is some sort of hope, however remote it is. Like the feeling that the Warriors have with Antoine Jameson, these perpetually bad teams like the Clippers and Warriors throughout the 90s and 2000s, they've got to have something to point to and say, okay, here's an example of some swing that we're trying to 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 take to get better and also to uh, sell tickets but there are a couple other players that the Clippers are hoping will pan out there's Troy Hudson and Tyrone Nesby both are guys from the Continental Basketball Association a precursor to the D League and the G League both played for the Sioux Falls Sky Force before they came to the Clippers Tyrone Nesby in his rookie season in the NBA played all 50 games earned a starting job Troy Hudson discarded by the Utah Jazz after a little bit of playing time in his rookie season. Um, In his first season with the Clippers, he also showed some flashes. And I also don't want to leave out Eric Piatkowski, who's uh, at the time the all-time leader in three-pointers made for the Clippers. He's made 334 to that point in his career. Shoots 39%. Definitely a good player for the Clippers, albeit one who doesn't usually start. Um, And it's crazy to think that 334 across many, many seasons was enough to be the the franchise leader for somebody at some point, considering that's like what Buddy Heald does in one season. But, you know, as, as far as, you know, Clippers players in, go into the season, that's about it. There's no one who has any delusions that this team is going to be good. We can at least hope that they're going to be interesting. Their win total over under is set at 25 and a half. Um, that is tied for the lowest mark in the league. And also, like I said before, the very first game that we're going to cover in depth in this show is going to be the Sonics and the Clippers in the very first regular season NBA game at the Staples Center. The Clippers got it before the Lakers. That's kind of unexpected. Now, one thing I want to mention before I close out the uh, the Clippers section here is that Maurice Taylor, their power forward that I mentioned, he requested from the Clippers a max contract extension, six years, $71 million. The Clippers declined because in addition to being racist, Donald Sterling is incredibly cheap and would rather his team just be bad forever and lose every talented player that they ever have than uh, pay money to have a winning team. So anyway, Maurice Taylor has already let the Clippers know 
that he's going to leave LA in free agency if they don't trade him. So they are going to be searching for trades the entire season in hopes of getting something for him instead of losing him for nothing. So uh, that story is going to come to an end with a very interesting twist. So look forward to that. All right. I think that about covers the Clippers and the Pacific Division. This division has you know, a lot of teams that are going to be good this season. Um, everybody's begging for a Lakers versus Blazers playoff series and and predicting it. But, um, you know, I mean, the, the top five teams in this division, the Blazers, Lakers, Suns, Kings and Sonics, every one of these teams can talk themselves into being able to win at least a playoff series this this season. Obviously, the Suns and the Blazers and the Lakers have much higher aspirations than the Kings and Sonics realistically do this season. But it's going to be interesting. So as of right now, with the schedule that I've laid out, um, not counting the playoffs, I've got lined up this season. Two Clippers games, two Warriors games, two Blazers games, three Suns games, four Sonics games, four Kings games, and 10 Lakers games. I wish that number wasn't so skewed towards the Lakers, but you know, a lot of this is based on availability online. It's really easy to find games from the, the Kobe and Shaq era for free, but uh, that's also a good thing because then I can focus on spending money to get games that don't feature the Lakers. That's, that's one fewer team that I've got to worry about. But also, people want to hear about the Lakers. I selfishly want to want to get listens on this podcast, so I've got to cover the Lakers a, a, a little bit. But I totally get that People want to hear about the Lakers. They're compelling. They're really good. I would assume they're the most popular team in the world, especially in 2000 with Shaq and Kobe. So we will, of course, cover the Lakers a lot on here, but I'm going to make a conscious effort to talk about every other team in the league as well. But that about does it for this episode. So thank you very much for listening. Hope you're as excited about this new podcast as I am. And please, again, there's a link to a survey in the description of this episode. And the next episode is going to be about the other division in the Western Conference, the Midwest Division. So we will talk then. All right. Have a good one.